Thank you for joining us on this episode of Eminent Teachnology with Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett, where we examine current and emerging technologies through the lens of diversity and equality. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a new episode of Eminent Teachnology with Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett. Uh, today, we have one of my favorite topics, which is going to be an Ask Drew session. <laughs> So <laughs> Rochelle is going to ask me a question and I will pretend to know the answer or I will I will know the answer to the best of my ability. <laughs> and I think it's going to be I think this is going to be a good one, Rochelle. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to talking about this. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I'm going to get some technical things wrong on here, but I hope it gives our listeners at least like some minimal good information about uh, today's topic. So so Rochelle, what what is your question today? So. One of the things that has always uh, puzzled me is the term coding. Um, back in the 70s and 80s, we call that programming. Mm -hmm. Is it exactly the same thing, coding and programming? And why is there a new moniker for it if, there if it is the same? Uh, so that's a great question. And I think that it's pretty much the same at this point. In the olden, I'm going to say olden days, and when I no, say olden days, talk about my age, Drew. I'm only 19. <laughs> I was say any anything that was uh like shortly after I got out of college is olden days. So we're going to say like the year 2000 is olden days. Oh my god! In technology oh here. My god. Let me get my wheelchair and my uh my warm blanket shawl and sit in front of my heater. Oh, Rochelle, don't you know the world didn't exist before I got out of college? Like I did not uh... know that. Thank you for letting me know. <laughs> Any, it explains anytime. why I don't why I don't matter because it didn't exist before then. Like, <laughs> I've only been in in the world for twenty three years. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've done a lot in those twenty three years. You should be proud. Like <laughs> so, we'll say olden days, aka twenty three years ago, when I thought of programming. What I thought that was was a, and I, I think it still is. Is you know, uh, you open up Microsoft Word. Microsoft Word is a very complex program written by lots of great uh, engineers working on the shoulders of generations of engineers before they did. And working on a project like that, uh, at least for me at the time, seemed very unattainable, right? Like how on earth would you create a document that can create Word documents, create a program that creates Word documents, right? Like there's fonts, there's layouts, there's like all this stuff that just seems uh, impossible for uh, a normal human being uh, to comprehend. And that's sort of what I saw as programming for a very long time. As sort of a transitionary step, something that is much more uh, accessible, I think, is scripting. So with programming, you have a giant compiled program that runs. It's got tons of intricacies in there. With scripting, it blurs the line a little bit, and you can create a file that just runs multiple commands and does one or multiple things, which is very much, the end result is very much like a program, right? Like you may not have a script that can create Word documents or edit Word documents, but if you put enough time in there, you could create a script that did that. It would have a lot of like external dependencies and probably wouldn't be great, but it's very, very close. And then using something like Python, which is a scripting language, while it's scripting, it does a lot of stuff. It does just as much as something like C, C Sharp, 
C++, uh, Fortran, all of that. Like it has all of those features, but it's much closer to a script than an actual compiled programming program. And, you know, when you sort of take that on, that's a lot more accessible, right? Like maybe I can't write a C-sharp program or a C++, but I can write a Python script. And how do I know I can write a Python script? Well, something even simpler than Python is Bash. So shell scripts, those are very simple. You can do a two-line Bash script, and now you have a perfectly functioning script. So you sort of have this evolution of, you know, run a single command, run multiple commit run multiple commands inside of a script or do multiple things at once with something like Python. And then once you're at that Python step, you are very close to doing just like full on programming. And I think all of that counts as coding. Bash scripting is coding. Python is coding. C sharp is, is coding. C plus plus. Like all of those, all of those languages are coding languages. And then when we get even further in, we think about, uh, we we're talking briefly about DevOps right before. DevOps is a, I guess this term has been around for going on 10 years or so. So not super old, but like half half our lifetimes <laughs> 10 years ago. And uh, DevOps takes like application development and operations and combines them. So when we think about programming or coding, that's really development, the dev side of DevOps. Operations is how do I run Apache? How do I keep a Linux server up? And while I would say maybe 10 or 20 years ago, it wasn't you didn't necessarily need to know both. You could have people that did operations, keeping the servers going, and then a completely separate group of folks that did coding or programming development. And when DevOps came around over the last decade or so, those two positions sort of merged and people found that, hey, if you're a developer and know nothing about operations, that's sort of a bad spot to be in and vice versa. If you're doing operations and know nothing about how code works, that's also sort of a bad situation. So they've combined this now into DevOps, which I think is really personally, I really like it, but I can also see the side that says, well, if you're spending your time between development and operations, maybe you're not going to be good at either. You're just going to be sort of mediocre at both. Whereas if you focused on one, you might end up being better. Uh, I think there's enough room to go around to focus on both because both are really important and really like go hand in hand. Like almost if we talk about uh, cooking again, right? Like if you know how to, you want to know how to prepare a steak and also cook the steak, right? Like if you're in a fancy restaurant, you might have different people preparing the steak versus cooking the steak. But uh, for those of us who aren't lucky enough to work at those super fancy places, <laughs> we have to do both. We're going to have to prepare our steak and we're also going to have to cook it. And then maybe at the end, we'll eat it and it will be delicious. That's interesting. You know, so I was thinking about when you first started this, talking about you know olden days. You know, God help us, please. We're old. God only knows. When, one day when you're in your fifties, we will have this conversation about the olden days. <laughs> That's only a few years away. <laughs> um, I might not be alive in a few years from now. But but let me ask you this. So um, I remember one of my first complex program programs was a point of sale system for a major uh, 
retail operation. I don't think they even exist anymore, but they were huge back in the 70s and 80s. I mean, they were all over the place. I mean, in very few states you went to and they weren't there. So I won't mm-hmm. say their names, but um, and I remember, you know, and if you're paying attention, audience, you'll hear me give you an answer to one of those questions Drew challenged you with. But um, the number of calls that programs had to do to bring in a function or a service or something like that. So if your program, you know, was to do, you know, point of sale system and collect all the data from each retail, compile it, and put it in. A, so all of those calls that went into the program that get it there. We didn't have APIs like you talk about them today. We had GUIs and we had all these different things that had to be coded in so that when uh, the the point of sale was there and the, the person who was running the store needed to print out the organization the data to see how many sales they did, what sold best and all those different things. You know, when you were talking about the complexity of those calls probably could have done or complexity of those tasks probably could have done by been done by a script. But scripting mm-hmm. was like C++, Python, all these things. They were not mainframe, main state software. You know, we had COBOL and Fortran and mm-hmm. Assembler. And, you know, it depends on the thing. It was RPG. There were all of these different things that were out there that you use for this. So all of these new things that make it simpler and better are great. But one of the things that happened, and you could tell me whether this is correct. So let's just say our program went live, you know, tested everything, it worked. And when it got to the store for them to process it, it crashed every single time. So store A went to get their data and it would crash. And we call that aborting. The program would abort. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know why we use those terms, <laughs> but the program would abort. And you'd have to find out where it was. But things like Apache, they were around back in the day. So all these things that you could code and you could find out. So you get a log, you'd have to read through this paper log, like it was 700 pages long <laughs> to find your error. And then when you find your error, you go fix it. And that means the 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 main part of the program works fine. But where that abort happens when this store goes to pull its data, was where the error was. And the error was that store wasn't recognized as a valid store in the program. So in other words, if you were store 031, you mm-hmm. know, and you weren't there, and when you went to hit it, it would say, hey, there's no such thing as 031 abort. Yeah. So you only had to change that little bit of code to add that uh, store in there. Is that still true today that you can just modify a small portion of the program and it still works the way it worked, you know, when you first designed it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's still, I would say, like, not much has changed. Okay. <laughs> like, uh, I found, like, no matter how much you test, uh, not every time, but a lot of times, no matter how much you test, you get a lot of people involved in testing. You test every possibility that you and everyone in the room can think of, and then you put it in production, and it immediately breaks. Right. <laughs> because users use your program in a way that you are not going to right. expect. And I think testing really helps, right? Like every time one of those issue ha- issues happens, you can add a new test in and hopefully catch it from and prevent it from happening again. But there's always going to be uh, new errors. And I think sort of the trick to that is how do we fail properly? So we may not want the point of sale software to crash and reboot the system if it can't find what store it's in, right? Like in theory, we may want to say, you know, to catch that, we may want to say, hey, I notice you're at store blah, store blah isn't in our system. I'm not even going to start this application until that's in the right spot. Or it could say, hey, 
store blah isn't in our system, I'm going to dump all of its results to an unsorted bin versus a store that is specific to that bin. And sort of based off of the business needs, you can pick either one. And saying that, it sounds easy. But the problem with computers and programming is like you don't really know what you're going to run into and still, until people start using it, unless you're a super genius. And there are super geniuses out there that just sort of predict everything. But most of us are not to uh, that level. So I think a lot of it comes down to how are you handling errors? Like why you're one, of, one of the things that, that I think in the issue that I just described where you're getting your data from, right? So somebody's supplying you the list of stores and information about those stores. It's not like the programmer is not, you know, mm-hmm. you know, con- con- conjecting these things. We are actually based on the data that someone has given you. And if you have bad data, and this has been true since olden days. <laughs> <laughs> bad I'll, data. Find an, I'll find a new word for that. We'll say pre-Drew out of college days. <laughs> I like it, pre-Drew out of college days. You know, back then, you know, there was cleaning the data. It was an intricate relationship between you and your end users, right? So let's just say someone who's in charge of the stores provided you all this data about the stores, where they're located and what they need. And then somebody else provided you information about sales numbers. So all of, and it wasn't aggregate. So it wasn't in a seamless document that you could go and pull out pieces and say, oh, this is why, this is what this store needs. It's like, you know, you get pieces and parts. And so you're building a program based on the input that you're getting from other people that are not technical, right? Mm -hmm. So they're not technically aware of what you need to know. So if, they miscode a store name. If they put in the wrong codes for sales of jeans, you know, all you can do is act on what they've given you. You can't, you know, you can go back, but, you know, sometimes that relationship was tense because the end user or the person who's describing this thinking you're not doing your job and you're thinking they're not, and you're trying to get on the same page. So, you know, quality control back in the day, I don't know what they call that these days, but quality control was import before program went out. So you'd have this, you know, all all the technology people have tested, 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 tested. It works fine. Then you have this meeting where you demonstrate it with the, the not the the stake stockholders, stakeholders or whomever you want to call them, but you, you and it looks fine. works perfectly fine. You go back and recheck the data they've sent, you know, get all the agreements, send them the program, put the program in place, make sure all the terminals work in the way they're supposed to. Bam. It goes wrong the very first night. (laughs) And the blame is almost always on the technician, never on the people who provide the data, where almost all the problems are the people who provide the data, not the technicians. Because a good techie will make sure that they cross all the T's and dot all the I's before they release it to a a community. They're not just going to say, oh, well, we built this program. Here you go. You know, it's going to be a lot of testing. You know, it's going to be documentation, training, all these things. And then you get your program released live. And the uh, end users and stakeholders want to burn you at the stake, you know, because your program has broken where they don't take any responsibility for themselves. And that one store that was missing, it was 013 instead of 031. And I remember how long it took me to get out of the woodshed because I got beat so bad for the program failing every time it ran. And that one thing was not my fault, but I got the beat for it, you know. So in that instance, do you see where there is a way to use code to, if not make the interaction with your data providers or your stakeholders more seamless, is that, has that process changed? And how do you, how do you do quality control and provide the end user with a product 
that's based on your information, but not what they're giving you. So in other words, mm -hmm. if they tell you every student has to have uh, this grade in order to, to uh, register for this class, if the program that you run it registers students and they don't, you know, when something goes wrong, how do you manage those relationships between the stakeholders and the technicians? So it's hard. And like, you're absolutely right. Like the technician is always sort of the first level of blame because I think they're the person that is out in front and sort of the face of the thing, even though it is like an application like that, just like you were describing, like it has multiple stakeholders, multiple people with different responsibilities, but the person doing the coding, if there's an error, it sort of comes down on that person, which is unfortunate, but it's the it's awful true. world we live in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it reminds me of, I want to give a little anecdote that I think might be interesting and then I'll answer. Uh, I was listening to a podcast recent, well, it was a couple of years ago. And they were doing this sub segment they call super tech support, which is where someone calls in and has a really weird tech issue. And then this person dives in and helps them. And this person's issue was that in their car, whenever they listen to a specific podcast, their uh, podcast player would crash, like built into the car. Didn't the like that song. <laughs> well, that's the thing, because they were like, is there something? The podcast was called 99% Invisible. Yeah. And the problem was, it wouldn't crash right away, but it was like after, you know, some number of seconds, anytime they listened to that podcast, uh, it would, uh, the their dashboard, like the dashboard uh, audio player in their car would actually just crash. So they went and investigated and they like asked the people that run the 99% Invisible podcast about it. And they had also seen that issue or had people complaining about it. And when they dug in, they found that the issue was, think about the name 99% Invisible. Like, what's what stands out to you about that name, Rochelle? Oh, I, you're, I think you're on mute there. I think the 1% that is not visible. That's what stands out to me because that's where the problem is, is with that 1%, not that 99%. We can scratch that off. It's just that 1%. Yep. And that's, so that's pretty much it. It's the, and it actually, it's the percent sign. So not, how many podcasts do you know that have a percent symbol in them? Like. Pretty per much very little. Right. <laughs> right. So in the coding world, when you are writing out a string, a lot of times a coding convention is print, and then we will say uh, percent sign S, which represents a string, or percent sign I, which represents an integer. And so what was happening in this car system is it was removing all of the spaces from the podcast name. So now it has a percent I in the middle of the string, and the car player was expecting that to be to have an integer passed into it. <laughs> not uh it wasn't expecting it just to be a string so like you know i can't fault the pod the people that made the dashboards well maybe you can't fault the people that made the dashboard system but you know they probably just weren't testing podcasts that had a percent in the name of it and never really thought about that and there's one and to get around that you can't think of a like it's really hard for people to come up with edge cases like that like okay how are we gonna put every special symbol in like what about unicode like it's all it would be almost impossible for a human to figure out uh so this new technology which has come around i guess it's been around for a very long time but it's becoming more popular now is a testing technology called fuzzing and with fuzzing if you have 
what you can F-U-Z-Z-I-N-G? do is F-U-Z-Z-I-N-G? Mm-hmm. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not, I don't totally understand why it's called fuzzing, but what it does is if you're testing your code and your code takes, uh, let's call it a string as a podcast title, you can run fuzzing tests through this application and it will generate anything that it considers a string you know, hundreds of thousands of iterations, which are going to include the percent sign, probably every symbol, every number, every letter, every Unicode symbol, and run all of that through it. And if they had been using that sort of fuzzing type of testing, they probably would have caught it before uh, it hit people's cars. But again, like no fault on those developers, because that's is it's hard to predict what you don't know, right? We don't know what we don't know. And so it's hard to say... <laughs> what we can do. But I think we can take it, take advantage of the technologies we have. And as of the last uh, few years or so, fuzzing has become a very popular and easier thing to do. Like we don't have to write our own, I think they call them fuzzers now. It's a very, very weird name, but it's sort of nice that technology has now said like, oh yeah, we keep seeing issues like podcast names with a percent sign in them. So we need a way to fix that. And to fix that, they came up with this new testing technology and, you know, you don't have to use it, but it's there if you want to, which I think is very positive. I think the interesting thing about that, you know, the way it's going, where technology is going, especially with technology support. Like used to be you could know a little about something. So let's just say you got a job as a help desk support person. You could know very little. Right. You could know the basics. Right you know, auto save on Microsoft Office, you know, how to set that up or whatever. But the programs are becoming so intricate. And so some of them have a combination proprietary and open source, but there was so much intricacy. It's like looking at a spider web, really, when you try to pull these things apart. And one of those things, Drew, I'd like to ask you about. So my husband has an iPhone. We all have iPhones. And Every time he go get the weather, they show the weather in uh, what's that sea place in California where Apple is? Um, oh, Cupertino. Cupertino. It would yeah. show the weather for Cupertino, and so you know, Google it to see how to change it from that. And I mean, there. And what Apple did is they create this thing called community support, and it's this huge database. Any topic you put up, there's probably some discussion around it. Mm-hmm. But I think that what was really interesting about that relationship is based on the, the complaints people have, Apple may build that, that correction in the newest version of the operating system, or they may let it persist because people find work workarounds. Mm-hmm. So when you think about something that is that complex and that diverse in terms of types of things that's going on to make that program work. So Apple has to make their software work with Microsoft, you know, Adobe, and you could just keep going. The mm-hmm. list does not end. You know, and so the intricacy of being able to pull in data from someplace else and fix it is very interesting. But in the instance where Microsoft, where Apple decided not to fix this region thing, there was a, a solution in there. So I forgot what it is, but something you go in and delete something in the clock where your weather hmm. is. It's very complicated wherever it is. But that type of thing. So that is coding too, right? So mm-hmm. that program, although the operating system was manufactured by somebody, there is coding that goes into that in addition to that development of that operating system, right? Yep. Yep. And and that coding that goes in where users find these errors, right? So we talk about this a lot, dot one, dot two uh, releases. You never go with the original release of something. So if Apple releases uh, 
a, 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 an update of 16.0, you just let that one slide. So they've got around that by they don't release a 16.0 anymore. They go straight to a 6.1. And very few people recognize that. But those the code in there, you'll see the little notices, fix bug fixes, and it fixed this and it fixed that. But literally, they're changing the code based on problems that they did not anticipate when they originally released it. Mm-hmm. So when you have a big program like Apple or Microsoft or whomever it is, how do you get those pieces and parts to work with with the bug fixes that you find and the proprietary software from other companies like Microsoft or Adobe? So I think where that comes in is there's a, the word I think of when when I think about that is telemetry. And what that is, is it's I mean, it's te- telemetry has been around a really long time, but I-, I think it's more and more in use on big applications now. And that's when your phone is communicating back to Apple and telling Apple, it could be a number of things. It could be, the phone could say, hey, Apple, uh, Drew's uh, clock application crashed uh, at this point in the program. And it'll send back, they call it like a stack trace, which is, you know, in the code, it was on this line, it was called by this function, it had these parameters, like, just a heads up, here you go. And you may even notice that on your Mac, like I know, my Mac doesn't crash a ton. But every time it does, when it comes back up, I get a message that says, hey, here's this huge gibberish error, would you like to send it to Apple, uh, so that maybe they can fix it. And I always say yes, send to Apple, and they seem to never fix it, but at least they have the information out there. And I think what telemetry gives Apple or Google or any other software maker, or even it could be the uh, the person that makes the clock app on iPhone, they may have their own telemetry bit. And so your application is going to constantly be communicating either constantly with successes and failures, or they may just communicate back on failures sort of all on their preference. And they will tell the owners of the application, there's this many people using your app. We're getting 300 crashes. 299 of the crashes are when someone changes the time zone, right? And that says, hey, maybe we got one crash when someone, uh, you know, resized the app, but we got 299 crashes when people were changing time zones, so changing the time zone is probably going to be, or the t- changing time zone crash is probably going to be the one that they're going to focus on because that's what's affecting the highest group of people. I mean, it's it's almost like a democratic process. <laughs> like who has who's who has the most? What's the most the biggest most impactful issues? And those are probably the ones that are going to get uh, fixed quickest. Right. <laughs> so, so so let me ask you this. So in the world of coding which also is known as programming. I love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to put that on my signature, coding also known <laughs> as programming. Yes. Okay. But so in this space that we are and where I'm trying to get to, and I think that might be helpful for our listeners, proprietary and open source. We all know what that proprietary, somebody made it and they said, it's mine, you can't have it. It's how I give it to you is all you have open source is some open source programs that are out there you can develop or you can use open source code to develop your own program. But recently, I would say in the last five or six years, it might be a little bit longer than that, not more than 10, coding schools have popped up all over. Mm-hmm. Everywhere there's coding schools. And I'm going to pick on Apple because I really do love Apple. Um, they created a 
a, a source code on their systems for young people, for kids, you know, mm-hmm. that you could go write a program, you know, create an app that you can sell in the app store. So when you're coding on that level, so whether it's a Python script or a JavaScript or whatever it is that you're doing on this side, how much more complex is it on the side where you're co-creating a program or an application? So someone who, who let, let's just say they took a, a six-month coding class, would they be a good applicant for a job in DevOps or in programming or whatever you call it? You, is there actually a job? This is coding. I mean, is is that really a job function? And and if so, you know, what's the difference between these coding classes and what what happens in in a in an application or a program? Yeah. So I don't think there's much of a difference at all. And it, I think it all depends on the the job type as well. Like there are jobs that are 100% coding or programming. Uh, I don't think I would say those probably aren't the majority of jobs though. I think the majority of jobs are coding plus something else, right? Like, so coding plus operations or coding plus data analytics or coding plus security. Like there all seems to be, there seem to be flavors of everything. At at least from what I can tell, it's very rare to find a job that is just, hey, you're going to sit down and write Python code. You're going to write generic Python code all day or generic C++ code. Like I'm sure those jobs do exist, but the jobs that I see most frequently are, a security job, but we want someone that can code or an operations job, but someone that can code or analytics job, someone that can plus someone that can code. Like coding is becoming more of a skill as opposed to an actual job, at least from, from what I can see uh, in, on the job market is it's, it's just one of those things where like, Hey, in the old day, again, using the old days again, in the, in the pre-Drew out of college days. The olden days. <laughs> or Drew out of college. So make sure you make a note of that. The olden days or after Drew got out of college. Yes. When <laughs> when George W. Bush was elected to the White House. Oh, my God. Now we got to add another thing. So the olden days equal Drew out of college or, or uh, Bush in the White House. Yes. Yes. Help us. This is what technology has done to us, people. <laughs> yes. Like, you know, you may have like, uh, we would say like, maybe it's not just going to be a sysadmin job. Maybe it's going to be a sysadmin job around Linux or a sysadmin job around Windows or a sysadmin job around Solaris. Like there could be multiple flavors of sysadmin. And I feel like that's sort of where we're going now with everything else is you sort of have to specialize down a bit. Like, yeah, you might be a Linux person like myself. But you're also going to have to learn a bit of code. Like, what code do you learn? Honestly, I don't think it really matters. Just pick one and learn it. Like, I mean, it does matter. You don't want to pick one that is completely out of use. But there's Python, there's Go, there's uh, Rust is another big one. Like, as long as you're using one that are one of the more popular languages, like, there's going to be a use for it. Uh, Ruby is another one. Uh, it's sort of interesting to watch the Ruby on Rails. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ruby on Rails is great. Like Ruby on Rails, again, like that was made uh, during George W. Bush's tenure, <laughs> but it is in use everywhere now. Like I believe Twitter was uh, written in Ruby on Rails to start out with, and it's I don't think it's Ruby on Rails anymore. But uh, yeah, they dropped the on Rails part. <laughs> yeah, there we go. 
So, so it's just train dera derailments recently. Maybe that's a good idea. That's a very good point. That's a very topical too. All these train derailments, crazy. Exactly. So Drew, um, in this space, so um, what are the so one of the things that we have here on our topic is IDSs and editors. Mm -hmm. So um, regards to what language you 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 code in program in for the olden days or the druid <laughs> the college days um you know it would start out with a prompt and you mm -hmm. would just keep going and i remember the first thing i learned was how to make the computer say hello do you remember mm -hmm. that are you oh, old yeah. Yeah. E yeah echo so hello was, world yeah exactly so you had to write that code to prove that you could code and you know it seemed fairly simple very intuitive and then you got to these interfaces so can you talk a little bit about ides and editors and how you code using tools and how these things affect how you code yes absolutely and this is one of my favorite topics because uh it like sets off the dopamine in my brain whenever uh whenever i find a new feature in these things so i really like it uh and i'll jump back again like when i started coding we would use uh vim most most people use Vim as an editor or Emacs, which is a terminal uh, editor. Very simple, like you see letters on it and that's it. Uh, both Vim and Emacs have really gotten good over the last you know, several decades. And you can still use uh, Vim or Emacs as a code editor and have a perfectly great time, but you're gonna have to make a lot of customizations on there to be efficient. What I have really liked, uh, the code editor I use now is VS Code, which I really like. And uh, it's a free product by Microsoft, free. So as in it's sending Microsoft all of the telemetry on exactly what you're coding. So Exactly. So they can steal it and create their own programs. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Uh, but I and really like. And then sue you for using their code. <laughs> yes. They're like, we stole this out of your brain. You got to stop using it now. <laughs> exactly. And what I like about uh, sort of these more modern IDEs or code editors are that it will do a lot of the stupid stuff for you, or not stupid stuff, but a lot of the base stuff for you. So if you start typing out a variable name, it may autocomplete that for you, or it may suggest what it thinks you're going to write. Or nowadays with GitHub Copilot and all the chat GPT plugins, you may just describe what you want the program to do, and one of those apps is going to autofill the actual code in for you, which is scary, but also very cool. <laughs> so when you don't have a job, just remember you told them to use chat, GBT, all these things you told them that will replace you. And yes. that's one of the interesting things about code. So just looking at the parallel between you and I. So you just said what you write code in. You know, so we start out, you know, the very, very simple text editor. That's all. It was mm -hmm. just very simple. You just type in text. If you typed in something that wasn't there and you had it run. So as you, let's just say you're writing, you know, a paragraph of code at a time and you haven't gotten to all the things that it needs to do. But and then you test that piece of code. So you run it through the text editor and it finds your errors and correct it. So but that did not replace us. What replaced you know, my generation of coders was the evolution from those standard programming languages like COBOL and Fortran and Assembler. You know, I, I, every once in a while, I run across somebody who programs in Assembler. Mm -hmm. Fortran, not so much. COBOL, not so much. Um, you know, one of the things I think I'm going to get you for Christmas is the AS400. Do you remember that? Have you remember oh, yeah. Uh, we had one of those. We had one of those at uh, one of my first jobs. <laughs> and do you remember the software that drove it? You know, so 
part was Fortran and the other part was RPG. I'm going to get oh, you yeah. one of those for Christmas. I can't <laughs> wait to see what you create. <laughs> those things were, uh, there was one, this was in 2002 or 2003, I think, when I was working at this place. And it sat like on the desk right beside me. And it was huge. Like you could sit on it if you wanted to. It was uh, really big. It was really, it was, it was even, it was aged even in 2002 or 2003. But boy, that thing was rock solid as well. Like it was, you could pull like any piece out of it while it was up and running and replace it with no downtime. It was a really nice piece of hardware. Yeah. And, and the other piece of that was Sun OS and Oracle, you know, Solaris, they eventually migrated. And I guess I don't, somebody didn't Oracle buy them. Somebody yep. bought Sun Oracle OS. bought Sun. Yeah. And um, it was amazing. So Sun was narrow, you know, it wasn't like COBOL. The other thing, Sun was very narrow. You had to code where they said it had to be. It had to meet every... COBOL and Fortran and Assembler allowed you a little bit of liberty to work with any operating system. Mm-hmm. When SunOS came out and eventually became Solaris, those interfaces like Word and Adobe and all those things that were slowly coming into view, it did not like them. Yeah. <laughs> so it had to have a pot for them. Each one had a bucket. You know, I don't know what the right term is, but they had a bucket on the system that, and you know, when it needed to call one of them, it did. So in other words, you're running your, like you run your, um, Apple Linux system and you click on Word, it just opens up. Well, in the Sun Solaris Word, it would crash every time you crash this. You had to write an interface for the two so that you could allow Word or whatever it was to come in. And we didn't have Word like you have today. We had a very basic, boring Word. I mean, like, you know, it did not autocorrect. There was no grammar. You know, if mm-hmm. it was, it was very limited. So when you have those older systems that still may exist and someone may be using, how do you interface this new fast moving technology like Word? Like, so if you look at Word from, you know, maybe 2015 and look at Word at 2020, it's a different Word. I mean, mm-hmm. they completely rewrote the package. Now to the end user, it may not look like that, but they completely rewrote and they keep rewriting it for various reasons. So when you have new technology that is advancing that fast versus these older systems that may call it may say, Hey, you know, my operating system wants to use word or wants to use Adobe or wants to use, you know, whatever, you know, how do you, how do you manage the growth? Where, where is this coding going and how does it interface with older technologies that may still be out there that, that need programming for various reasons? Yeah. So it's, it's very hard. Like it's not, that's not an easy problem to solve and it's not really a problem that people have solved. But uh, when I think about thinking specifically about word, I think with what I think about with that is like, it's lots of tiny changes. Like what's the, uh, uh, there's a anecdote in a book talking about a guy who has an ax, but like, or a boat where once you replace every piece of the boat, do you have the same boat that you had? 10 years ago and a lot of times that's how it is with uh with programs right like word today probably does not share a single line of code with word i don't know 10 20 maybe three years ago i don't I don't know how often the word stuff changes but it's yeah. probably not the same as it was when it started but each little piece has probably been swapped out right like like a boat you know at one point uh, the anchor got too rusted so let's put a new anchor on and then the hull got a hole in it so let's replace the hull and then you know uh captain wanted a cushy chair so let's rip that wooden chair out and put a nice one in there and you know at what point do you have a new boat 
I don't know. Like the answer is probably somewhere in the middle there, but at the same time, you've just been on that boat the entire time while all the parts have been replaced. So the spirit of the boat is still there and the spirit of the boat is the same. Uh, yeah, it's hard. There's a very, there's a good, this could probably be its own topic, but one of the newer, I guess it's an idiom that programs have started doing is semantic versioning, which is, so usually you have a version that's like 1.2.3, or you could have a version that's one or two or three. Like it's going to be a version of some, with some numbers shoved together. And what do those numbers mean? That's hard to say. So I don't know who originated the idea, but the idea for semantic versioning is that if you have application 1.2.3, anytime you increment that third number, that's a uh, bug or security fix. Anytime you increment the second number, that means there's a new feature. Anytime you increment the first number, that's a breaking change. Right. So you may not go, you probably don't want to go from version 1.0.0 to 2.0.0 without doing research. Going from version 1.0.1.1.0 to 1.2.0, that's probably fine. That probably means that the 1.2.0 added some new features or 1.0.0 to 1.0.1 that 1.0.1 is probably some sort of security or bug fix. So that's probably a like low impact patch that you want to apply uh, as soon as you can. But it's yeah. it's hard to say. And that's every application is different, right? And there's no, people may accidentally make breaking changes when doing a small edit. Uh, and if the right tests aren't in place, you know, they're not going to find out until they push it out and the first user hits it. Yeah. I, you know, I know we're out of time, but I do think that there, this is a very interesting topic and, and understanding how code slash programming works together with with other manufacturers or other types of resources. You know, like, um, you know, if you have a proprietary resource in your organization and you want to link it to your program or link it to some application, you know, the pieces that exist between them has to be acceptable. And uh, I think the word that they use today is seamless and you know, synergetic interfaces. Whatever the answer is, is that where we're going with code these days, the people who are going to use that code need to work together so that code is developed to accept their applications. And the people mm -hmm. that are creating that code need some kind of, uh, I hate this word, checksum. I remember that word from programming. <laughs> I hate that word. But need some way to verify that what you're doing is correct and then yeah. to make sure it works with all the interfaces that you work. So if you're developing... Um, What's the um, the application at Duke that checks all the devices? It starts with a P Planisphere. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Like, okay. Think think about the coding it took to make that work. So you got to work with Dell. You got to work with uh, uh, who makes who makes uh, Windows computers? That is and Lenovo, whomever. But mm -hmm. all these people you have to work with to make sure all these pieces and parts work. That's a pretty powerful thing. And the person who's doing that, the guy who created Planisphere, a brilliant guy, you mm -hmm. know. You've got to have some smarts to understand that, but you also have to have some dependencies on these, you know, manufacturers to work with the code that you're developing, especially if you're working with code that's beyond just the scope of what you do. So if you want something every day to send you a report, tell you how many jobs failed, well, you know, you could do that on the side, no way care. But when you're right, working with things that are calling in other pieces or need to interface with other pieces, that code needs to be tight. Mm -hmm. So do I ask you as our last question, 
you know, where do you see code coding going with that kind of concern about the interfaces from other manufacturers or other program calls that you might make? So that's a, another really hard one. But I think the solution to that is there's a, a people call it throwing the ball over the fence, right? Like, so Rochelle, if you and I are building uh, our bingo app and you're an expert on how bingo works and I'm an expert on how to do iOS phone development or something, like we have two very different skill sets there, right? And both of those are needed to get our bingo app to market. And I think the solution there is not blindly throwing the ball back and forth. So like, I shouldn't say, Hey, Rochelle, I don't know, like teach me, teach me bingo in five minutes and I'll just do the rest. Right. Like that's not gonna, that's not gonna work. I'm not going to understand how bingo works after five minutes and vice versa with uh, my coding and your like knowledge of the bingo bits. Like there's going to be overlap there. There's going to be parts where we need to say like, Hey, something doesn't work. Uh, and our human nature, and this is my human nature as well, is to say, like, can't be anything I did. Like, I thought of it. I thought of all this stuff, right? Like, it's not, uh, it definitely can't be my problem. Rochelle, it must be your problem. And I think the key to that, I think the key is not doing that, not throwing the ball over the fence and saying, like, uh, my side's perfect. Here you go. Like, you figure everything else out. That's something that we should be working together on. And I think together on, like, any any piece of software like that talking about uh the planisphere which is uh device tracking across different things that has to you know interface with lots of different stuff the guy writing that like maybe he wrote it by himself but he had input from lots of different people like lots of stakeholders guided him yep. through that and he also guided them through like what is actual po what's actually possible to do in an application so I mean, I think the real answer is don't be afraid of collaboration and like know that you are not perfect, <laughs> like know that you are not perfect yourself as, you know, because we don't know what we don't know. And that's what uh, I think really bites uh, technology people a lot of times is thinking that, yeah, we went through everything, can't be anything here, but we went through everything that we can think of. We didn't go through everything. So bringing in new people, new ideas, fresh set of eyes, I think all of that really helps. Yeah. Drew, you are simply brilliant and we can't wait to hear more about this. So I just want the audience to know that Drew and I are, you've heard him talk about it several times on this podcast. We are going to develop a bingo game, an iOS bingo game. I guess I have to de develop one for um, Windows based or what is it? Oh, old Android. Android-based uh, thing. So just just keep on your P's and Q's and wait for the app. Uh, I'm going to do my part and everything that goes wrong is going to be Drew's fault. <laughs> that's, that's probably very accurate. So <laughs> that can be our lesson. That's, that's my lesson every day, Rochelle. <laughs> well, thank you. thank you all for listening. Uh, I think this is a pretty fun one. And uh, we hope that you will send us your feedback to imminentteachnology at gmail.com. And we will see you all next week. Thank you.